Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. On the podcast today, we're going to talk about intervention, meaning when do you as a leader intervene in situations around you? Now, this presentation today uh, originated in a response that I made to some doctoral students who wrote some ministry action contacts about certain situations they were encountering in ministry and wanted to discuss this issue of when do you intervene in these practical ministry challenges or issues that were being presented to these particular students. Well, because these are doctoral students, they are fairly high-level leaders already, and so not only did I present to them in response to their questions about intervention, but I asked them to help shape my presentation, add to it, subtract from it, and clarify it, and they helped me do that as well. So today on the podcast, I'd like to talk with you about the issue of intervention. When you should take the initiative to intervene in a situation. And it's not just what I'm saying, but I want to thank those doctoral students for helping to shape this presentation and make it better by adding to it, subtracting from it, and helping me to clarify some of my thoughts along the way. Well, let's first of all simply uh, answer the question, when do I intervene? Well, at least four different categories uh, or four different answers could be given to that question. First, you must intervene when you have a legal responsibility to intervene. Uh, for example, mandatory reporting. If you hear of or know of an instance of sexual abuse or sexual harassment or inappropriate sexual behavior of any kind toward a child, meaning a minor, you must report that. You must intervene. And so if you have a legal responsibility, you intervene. Second, you also need to intervene when you have what I'll call an ethical mandate. In other words, you hear of something that's inappropriate, unethical. It's really not illegal, but you know it's wrong. Now, let me give you just one example of this that happened to me a number of years ago. A number of years ago, I had a situation where I learned of a man's adultery. And so I confronted him about this. And I said, I have heard about these facts and this situation, and I'm asking you, you know, if it's true. And, of course, he knew I had the goods, and so he said, yes, it's, it's all true. And I said, all right, I know you well, and I know your wife well. And you have to tell her about this. And he resisted and didn't really want to do that and tried to find a way to convince me that he didn't need to tell his wife and that I didn't need to do anything more about it. But I knew I had an ethical mandate. I had to do the right thing. And so I said to him, look, you have to tell your wife and I'm going to give you 24 hours to do that. And then I'm going to check back with you. And if you haven't told her, then I'm going to need to tell her because I can't, in good faith, continue our relationship with you as a couple, me knowing this, you knowing this, and you being unwilling to tell your wife about it. An ethical mandate. Here's another situation. This one's also a bit dated, but it illustrates the principle. 
Um, a number of years ago, a church member who was a salesman, he sold uh, paper products. A church member was uh, out on his route, uh, grocery stores, convenience stores, and large enough businesses that they bought uh, paper goods like um, paper towels, toilet paper, these kinds of things. And his route uh, and some of his customers were in a seedier part of town. So he was coming out of a store where he had seen a manager, and he looked across the street and coming out of a uh, pornography store. And this was before the Internet. Uh, he was coming out of a pornography store with a bag of videotapes in his hand was this man's pastor. And so uh, he called me. Uh, by this time, I was working in denominational leadership and said, what do I do with this? And I said, well, you have to confront the pastor first and then give him the opportunity to confess this action to his leadership. Uh, and if he won't do that, then you have to go to them. And so he made an appointment that afternoon, went to see the pastor, told him what he had observed, asked if there was any reasonable explanation for why he was coming out of a pornography store with a, with a bag of videotapes. And of course, there was no explanation other than the pastor had been caught up in a pornog in pornography and was a frequent visitor to the store, et cetera. And so my friend said, you, ha you have a choice. You either have to call together the deacons of our church and tell them about this tonight, or I'm going to have to do that. But I'll give you the opportunity to do it first. And that's what happened. So this man had an ethical responsibility to intervene, just like I did, he did. Uh, a third time to intervene is when you get a formal invitation to intervene. Now, a formal invitation is when someone officially invites you into their situation. Now, this doesn't have to be a written contract, uh, although in some cases it can be. But if someone calls and says, we would like for you to come and mediate our conflict, are you to come and meet with our church and help us with this difficulty? Are you to come and meet with us as a couple to work through our, our problem? Then, per, then you have the opportunity to intervene if there's been a formal invitation. And then finally, you have a uh, responsibility to intervene when you're in a supervisory role in a working relationship. In other words, if you are someone's supervisor and you see them doing something that's illegal or unethical or uh, inappropriate, as a supervisor in a work relationship, you have a responsibility to intervene, to step in and say, this has to stop. I'm observing this behavior and it concerns me. We need to talk about corrective behavior. So in those contexts, you have a responsibility to intervene as well. So. You're rolling along through life as a leader. There's a lot of things happening around you. When do you intervene? Well, certainly when you have a legal responsibility, an ethical mandate, a formal invitation, or in an HR context, you find yourself in a supervisory role. Now, having said that, let me also say that there are some circumstances when you need to resist intervention. Now, this resistance may be resistance to your own temptation to intervene, your own impulse to intervene, or maybe even the invitation of others to intervene. So when should you resist intervention? Well, first of all, resist intervention when other people demand it. Well, you're the pastor. You need to do something about that. 
You're the president. You need to do something about that. When someone comes to you and demands intervention, because in their mind, you are the one who should be doing something about it, whatever it may be, that is not a mandate. You're not legally responsible. You're not ethically mandated. You're not formally invited, and you're not in a supervisory role. Just because someone demands that you do something does not mean that you have a responsibility to get involved. Second, you have to resist intervention when your feelings call for it. Just because you feel angry about something or compassionate about something doesn't mean that you have to intervene every time. Now, why do I pick anger and compassion as my two illustrations? Because these are the two feelings that get us in trouble at our house most of the time. For me, it's anger. I see something happening that makes me angry, and I feel the need to intervene. I feel the need to fire off a letter, shoot off an email, make a phone call. I get angry. I get stirred up. I get worked up. I get frustrated. I get agitated. Pick your word. It's anger. And when I let my anger get the best of me, I wind up involving myself in things for which I have no responsibility. And there's not going to be anything productive come for me getting involved. Now, for my wife, it's compassion. She feels deeply about people, especially hurting people, and she wants to help every single one of them. And it's hard for her. It's hard for her to not try to get involved, to try to help, to make better, to fix or correct. And so while I struggle with anger, my wife struggles with compassion. And when these feelings overwhelm us, we find ourselves getting involved in situations where we really should have just left things alone. How about you? Do you struggle more with feelings like anger or feelings like compassion that get you motivated and involved in things for which you really are not concerned and really should have been not, not intervened? Here's a third one. A third time to resist intervention is when the outcome is not worth the effort. We have an employee here at Gateway who has a favorite phrase. He'll often ask us in a meeting, is the juice worth the squeeze? Well, the first time he said that, I just roared with laughter. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Meaning, how much pressure, how much turmoil, how much difficulty are you about to involve yourself in for how much reward? So another time to resist intervention is when the outcomes are just simply not worth the effort that's going to be expended when the juice is not worth the squeeze. Here's another time to resist intervention, and that is when other people want you to solve their problems. When other people want you to solve their problems. When someone comes to you and says, I'd like for you to meet with me and with my uh, teenager to work out a difficulty we're having, and you say, okay, I can possibly do that, and their attitude is, good, now you can tell my teenager what he or she needs to do. I want you to solve my problem for me. I remember once when I was uh, a pastor, 
a man called me and said, I'm a member of a Methodist church in your community, and I'd like to come and see you with my teenage daughter. I said, all right, what, why would you want to do that? He said, well, my, my daughter is pregnant, and it's a very difficult situation in my own church. Some friends have told me that you're a trustworthy pastor, and frankly, uh, we need an outside voice to talk with us, in our, to talk in, speak into our relationship. This sounded reasonable on the phone. It sounded like a formal invitation to intervene. It sounded like a situation where I might could provide some meaningful help, and so I agreed to meet with this couple. Uh, this man and his daughter, I should say. They came into my office and they sat down and she was uh, crestfallen. Her her body language was defeated. Her, uh, her, her, her skin tone was uh, uh, washed out. Uh, she had obviously had been very much emotionally drained, even already by that day's uh, circumstances. They came into my office. Uh, he was rather agitated and very aggressive and, and, so when they sat down there with me, he said, here's what's happened. And he told me the story and he just kept heaping on the detail and the guilt and the shame. And his daughter just kept getting smaller and smaller in front of me. And then when he got to the end, he said, so I've brought her here today for you to straighten her out. And I thought, this is not going to be a healthy intervention because he wants me to solve the problem. And, of course, what he didn't see was he himself was also a significant part of the problem. So that's what I mean when I say when people want you to solve their problems, then that's not going to be a healthy intervention, and you need to resist being involved in that. And then finally, when people want emotional release instead of measurable solutions, again, Back to my pastoral days, I once had a couple in my church that uh, periodically had really intense fights, and they would call me in the middle of them and say, can you come over and help us? We're, we're fighting. We're arguing. We need your help. And of course, I was at the time a pretty young pastor, and I thought I needed to go, and so I would rush over to their house. And I did this a couple of times. And finally, about the third time I went over... Uh, when I opened the door, there was a potted plant that had been shattered that one of had thrown at the other one, and there was uh, dirt all over the floor and all this, and I thought, what in the world am I doing here? And so I just stopped and said, look, I can't help you tonight. You're both out of control. Come to my office tomorrow afternoon, 2 o'clock, and we will sit down and we will work on these problems. And I went home. And do you know what happened the next day at 2 o'clock? They never came. And while they continued to be a part of our church, they never called on me again for counsel. Why? Because they wanted me to intervene when they needed an emotional release, not when they wanted real solutions. I was willing to intervene if they were willing to come to my office and work on it in a reasonable way. But this taught me a very important lesson. When all people want is emotional release, it's not an indication you need to get involved. So, We've talked about when to intervene, and we've talked about when to resist intervening. Now, if you do decide to intervene, you have one of these four reasons that I said was a legitimate reason to intervene, and you feel like you need to get involved, let me give you now some principles to guide you uh, during or as a part of this intervention process. 
And as again, I want to thank these doctoral students who helped me with this. I I went through my list of principles of intervention and asked them to augment it, add to it, take away from it, clarify it, and they helped me do that. And so that's where I came up with these 10 things I'd like to say now as principles of intervention. Number one, get outside counsel before you agree to intervene. Get outside counsel. In other words, ask someone else who's not emotionally invested in the situation, do you think it would be a good idea for me to intervene in this situation? And don't be afraid to ask non-ministers about this, meaning other professionals. Go to a counselor and say, this is the situation. Do you think it would be helpful? Do I have the tools, resources, and capacity to help in this situation? You're maybe getting involved in things that require legal advice or accounting insight. Why don't you talk with some of these people before you get involved? This is the wonderful thing about having a diverse leadership team in your church, where you have people on that team who represent different perspectives and different professions, and you can simply say to them, uh, here's the situation is this something I should get involved in or is this something our church should get involved in or is this something as a leader I could be a part of and make a meaningful contribution? I know that over the years, as I've thought about how to intervene or if I should intervene, I have been saved on more than one occasion by wise counselors, many times non-ministers, who were able to say to me, wow, before you go into that, Here's some circumstances you need to think about, or here's some facts you need to know, or here's a perspective you need to consider. And man, those were eye-opening conversations that helped me know whether or not I should really get involved. A second principle is assume responsibility in an intervention, only commiserate with your authority that you're also given. In other words, you don't go into a situation and take responsibility for any part of it that you don't also have the authority to decide about along the way. So while you might go in as a consultant, that's one thing. But if you're being asked to invest yourself in the actual solutions, you don't want to take on that responsibility unless you're also given appropriate authority. This is very important for those of us in Baptist life as we try to work and in, in, in intervene in church ministry. You know, people will sometimes call me and say, can you come and help us in our church with this particular problem? And I will say, only if I'm given the authority to also solve the problem once we discover it, once we isolate it, once we work through it. Because with responsibility without authority does not produce healthy intervention. Now, a third thing that's very helpful is as you go into an intervention, Get clear agreement on the outcome, not the process, but the outcome. In other words, if you're asking me to come into your situation as a couple or come into situation as a church or come into your situation in your leadership team, before I agree to come in, what is the outcome that we'll be working toward? Is the outcome a healthy, productive marriage? Is the outcome a division of responsibility in the leadership? Is the outcome a separation and creation of two different churches instead of one? What is the outcome that we're all agreeing to before I come in to the situation? And then when I get in the situation, I want you to know I'm going to pursue that outcome relentlessly. Now, you say, but what if it becomes evident that you're not going to be able to achieve it? 
Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But be prepared to walk away, to step out of it, to say, I'm not doing this because the outcome we agreed to is no longer in view. Therefore, my role in this intervention has concluded. A fourth part of a good intervention is to establish and maintain a workable timetable to receive the desired outcome. So, for example, I I never would commit, even in pastoral ministry, to open-ended counseling. If a couple came to me and said, we need help with uh, these issues related to our our, uh, parenting or our uh, sexual life or uh, with our relationship with our in-laws, I would say, that sounds like something I could help you with. Let's plan to meet three times and see how much progress we can make toward the solution of this defined outcome. Setting a reasonable timetable. Now, if you're involved in a church situation where you're consulting with a group or you're having to solve problems with large numbers of people, the timetable will necessarily need to be longer. But intervention is is uh, moved along if it's on a timetable. If you say, I'll meet with you three times, or in the next 90 days, we're going to resolve this, or something like that. Number five, in a good intervention, document your communication and your decisions. Remember, in most instances where an intervention is requested or is called for, there's already low trust and high conflict. So therefore, keep good records. Write down what you agree to do and what both parties agree to do. Keep notes from the meetings. Publish minutes if they're of official meetings. Maintain good documentation and communication of the decisions reached and of the process involved in those decisions so that there remains a clear record of what the group or the two people are working toward in the intervention. And then number six, get professional help in the midst of an intervention depending on the kind of circumstances you're working on. Ministers and Christian leaders tend to overestimate their capacity to solve certain kinds of problems. We say, well, we've prayed about it. Um, we, we, we are men and women of high character. We have pure motives. Therefore, we're going to get to the right decisions. Well, there's one thing missing in that equation, and that is you may not have the right information to know what to do. I think about a situation where I was called in to intervene in an organization. And when I arrived there, after one meeting, I said, I'll be willing to continue to help, but we need an accountant. We need a forensic accountant. We need someone who has real skill at looking at and deciphering numbers for the rest of us before we can go forward. Another time I was thinking about a significant intervention in an organization, and I actually went so far as to write the document about what I thought needed to happen. But before I did anything with that document, I sent it to uh, my attorney uh, for my organization. And I said, I'm working with this situation. I'm thinking about uh, this document and releasing this information and making these statements. And I'd like to get your counsel on this before I go forward. 
And he called me and said, I understand where you're going and what you're trying to do. And I, I really appreciate your, uh, your integrity and your desire to be transparent and honest and forthright. But then he said, but legally, I would strongly advise you to change this document. I said, well, why? And he explained to me why. And I said, yes, but. And he said, I understand. You're thinking like a minister, and I respect that. But I'm thinking like your legal counsel right now. And this is what I advise you. And if you'd like, I can revise these and send them back to you. And he did. And when I got the documents back, I thought, man, this is just, it just feels like such a sellout to not say these things and not lay this all out in public. And when I called him and told him that, he said, you'll feel differently in six weeks. Just, just trust me, you'll feel differently in six weeks. Well, he was exactly right. I went on with the intervention. I went on with what needed to happen. I used his documents and his guidance on what we said publicly about the situation. And what, what finally happened was what we said and what we wrote and what we did actually uh, lowered the uh, anxiety and simplified the processes and uh, eliminated some of the conflict rather than increasing it like I thought it might. Man, I was so glad I talked to an attorney before I went forward with that intervention step that I was about to take. Accountants, attorneys, counselors, people who have real expertise in certain areas that are often a part of conflict situations or tense situations or difficult situations that require intervention, these people can be so helpful in keeping you from making serious mistakes. Then number eight. Uh, or number seven, take definitive action toward the agreed-upon outcome. No half measures. In other words, you have to keep pushing toward real solutions and strong solutions and definitive solutions. And that leads to number eight, which is document and communicate these final outcomes appropriately. Write it down and say to everyone around the table, is this what we've all agreed to? Then this is what we're all going to hold ourselves to. Document and communicate. I've done this simply. Once I asked uh, one of our uh, people that was, or two people that were in conflict, I said, uh, we've worked this out. Uh, we've got this resolved. This is going to be behind us now from this moment forward, right? And they said, yep, that's right. I said, okay, pull out your Bibles. And they did, and I said, open up to the inside flap, and I want you to write something like this. On this date, I sought, resolved this conflict with this person, put their name in there. And they wrote it in their Bible, and I said, now sign it. And I said, now the next time this comes up, I'm going to ask you guys, open your Bible. Remember, this is over. It can be as simple as something like that, or as more complex as a formal legal document. But when you get to the end of an intervention, write it down. Agree to it. And then when it comes up the next time or somebody goes back to revisit it or somebody has a continued problem, say, whoa, no, stop. That's over. Here's where we resolved it. Let's go back and look at that. Now the last two things. Number nine. If you are asked to intervene in a situation or you feel that you must intervene, for these reasons I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, you must also be willing to walk away if there is not going to be a healthy outcome. 
Just because you agree to intervene doesn't mean that you agree to stay for months or weeks or even days if it's very evident that the parties involved really only want you to solve their problems or give them emotional release, but they don't want to work toward real solutions. The capacity to simply say, I can't help you anymore and walk away must never be forsaken. Never give that up. I'm thinking about, <clears throat> I'm thinking about a director of missions that was a really fine leader in the Pacific Northwest, and he was working with a church that was in conflict. And they had been in conflict over different things for years. They had brought in other people to try to, quote, intervene, but they'd never had really workable solutions. And this particular man had a little different perspective on how intervention was supposed to work, and so he met with them, and uh, he met with them twice. And after the second meeting, he said, uh, I can't help you. My advice is that you either close your church or just prepare for a long, slow death because I don't see any future for you, and I'm sorry. But thank you for letting me come to these last two meetings. And he got up and walked out. A few days later, the leaders called him and said, uh, you know, we we really think we need serious help. Could you come back? He said, on certain terms where we have defined outcomes and written goals and specific timetables. And some of you may even be asked to leave and you have to agree to do that. But yeah, I'll come back, but I'm only coming back if we're going to actually have an intervention, not just a facilitation of this ongoing nonsense you guys have been dealing with for all these years. He was willing to walk away, not as a leverage point, although it turned into one, but he was willing to walk away because he just wasn't going to waste his time anymore on this pointless conflict. And then finally, Separate your professional decisions from your personal interactions. What do I mean by this? Well, sometimes in ministry, you have to say, I'm walking away. I can't help you. This situation is over. We're done. That's your professional responsibility. But you may on a personal basis then say, I'd like to pray for you and support you. And if I can help you to go forward, I will. But in terms of this situation, we're finished. I think about an intervention I was involved in where I was a part of having to say to a ministry leader that they were terminated for immoral behavior. And when that confrontation took place and the intervention was concluded and the person was terminated, I said to him, this termination is immediate today. This organization has dismissed you. Nothing can be done or should be done to uh, change that decision. However, uh, I'm still your friend, and I'll pray for you, and you can call on me for personal support. I'll try to help you find a secular job. I will support you personally, but that's separate than my professional responsibility as one who intervened in this situation. You know, oftentimes we get our feelings and our personal emotions and our care for people and our relational connections, we get that all balled up into our professional or our ministerial or our leadership responsibilities, and they're not the same thing. So I want to challenge you today. If you are involved in intervention, keep it on a professional level. And then if there's personal support needed after, certainly you can offer that as a Christian friend or a Christian brother, Christian sister, but don't let that get mixed up in 
your intervention responsibilities? Well, this is a tough subject. When to intervene, when not to intervene, and when you do find yourself intervening in a situation, whether it's a couple in conflict, a family dynamic that's having tension, a church leadership team with turmoil, or maybe even a church that's considering a split. When you get involved and get is in an intervention situation, maybe some of these principles or suggestions I've given today will help you to do it more effectively. Intervention, tough challenge. Do it well. Do it when it's needed. Do it appropriately as you lead on.